Thanks, Nate. My first time playing with this. Over there, crushing it. Um, got a Bible turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll continue our family study in the book of 1 John. Before we do that, I honestly want to take just an, another minute and uh, full disclosure, your brother has an anxious heart this morning for really no apparent reason at all, and I'm um, going to give you the, the grace to assume that maybe some, there are others among us, brothers and sisters this morning, who uh, maybe just need a minute to um, take a deep breath and offer ourselves before the Lord, and so if you'll just take a minute right where you are and assume whatever posture your heart desires, and Take a deep breath and just say, Lord, here I am. Maybe you've got an unvoiced weight, fear, stress, uncertainty in your heart or your mind that you're wearing bearing unnecessarily right now, just entrust your cares, frets, fears, and worries to your Father who can handle them and who invites you to give them away. Financial strain, relational stress, job uncertainty. Father, we, your children, ask you to interrupt us this morning. Father, with the things that bombard us and the things that we willfully inundate and bathe ourselves in heart, mind, body, and soul. Cut through distractions, Lord. Help us to hear and see and taste your nearness voice and your goodness as a family this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your active, living spirit that is stirring within us even now. Lord, help us to hear your word. God, help us to respond in obedience so that we may know the fullness of your joy, the peace of your presence, and Lord, the power of your name one family this morning, whether whether in this building or at home. May your word abound and multiply in us by your spirit, Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. Good morning. First John chapter 2, verse 18. As we know, we've seen the last two weeks, and we will see for the coming weeks. Um, John is pretty clear in his letter, in his epistle, of why he writes. Four different times he tells us why he writes. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I write this letter to make our joy 
complete. In chapter 2, just last week, we saw, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Uh, and 2.26, which we'll see today, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray so that you can be protected from false teachers. So he writes to keep us aligned, focused. Fourthly, in chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he writes to provide assurance of the salvation of the children of God. Listen, I was a persistent doubter my entire young Christian life, trying to figure this thing out. And I went time and time and time again to 1 John read because it really kind of gives us a test, right? Um, we've seen the love test. We've seen the obedience test. This morning in the latter part of chapter 2, we see the perseverance test or the endurance test of those who are in Christ. If you'll remember the setting for 1 John, when John is writing in the latter part of between 90 and 100 A.D., about 2,000 years ago. Um, it's the same that was in his fourth gospel of John. Uh, it's to encourage Christians who are expelled from synagogues, uh, some of whom's colleagues, those who were side by side, like they were, they were worshiping together in a space maybe similar to this, um, and uh, they were family. But then, as a few of the Roman emperors and even the uh, the elite Jews, as these Christians were coming out of Judaism and professing, receiving, and following Jesus, they were seeing persecution from the Jewish side and from the Roman side. So Roman emperors are imparting pretty intense persecution on the Christian. And then you've also got the Jews who are kind of running them out of synagogues and places of worship, and they're a little displaced. And so you had some gatherings like this of Christians who were professing and following Jesus. But then what we'll see today is many of them, because of the persecution on both sides, started to leave. They started to disappear. And so the family was getting smaller, and the people, the family was getting fearful, those who remained. John put these tests forward because there was, you got to remember, this whole Jesus thing, all right, the Messiah coming, this Christian movement was in its infancy, and so these folks are getting nervous, like, well, they were here, and now they're there, are we in the right, are we in the wrong, what are we really doing? So there was just uh, persecution on every side, a whole lot of uncertainty, and abounding fear. And so, um, <laughs> we kind of get a a classic bad to worse scenario in 1 John chapter 2 that ends up being an encouragement, okay? So, with that being said, let's look at 1 John. We're going to read verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 to 28, and we're going to look at four or five principles that we can draw out um, that will pertain to us this morning, and God willing, encourage our hearts, strengthen our minds, and our hands. So, children, come on there, here we go. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. 
they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Wait. Okay, I'm learning how to do this uh, first slide, next slide, there, Nate. I think I went one ahead. You know what? I'm going to let you do this. Rookie. You know what? Let's start over. Uh, so in first, kidding. Um, first John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Let's just pause here, because we're not going to, the title was a little misleading, but we're not going to talk a whole lot about Antichrist, all right? I grew up, and we, we spent two years in my home church studying Revelation, and um, the man of perdition or the lawless one or the Antichrist is going to come, kind of an end time scenario. That, for me, when I would read this, it was really alarming because for years and years and years, um, every time anybody whom my hometown did not agree with had a loud voice on a national level, they were the Antichrist. And so it was like many Antichrists have come which is not necessarily the case because you know what we're going to see today? Many antichrists have come. We're not talking about like people we're seeing on TV, but those among us who have said we, those who do not endure within the family of God, anyone who, and we see this in uh, probably chat, uh, verse 26, anyone who turns from or throws a hand in the face of Jesus is Savior and does not confess that Jesus is the Son of God and that God is Savior and Lord is an antichrist, literally meaning not like one who's going to rule the world and change everything, but literally even myself is I'm a Christ opposer. I am against Christ, okay? So it's really easy with this word, the baggage of this word, and some of us, especially myself, can make it seem so... I could never be. This is so, you know, way in the future and somebody else's deal. Hey, in the days that Chase Sims is unwilling to entrust and submit my heart, my mind, my soul, my life to Jesus and listen to him in the midst of fear, stress, fret, worry, and anxiety, I am opposing the goodness of Christ. I am opposing and working and living outside the power and the provision of Christ. And I am in that moment anti, in opposition to, and from Christ. You're either a friend of God or an enemy of God, right? And so, when an antichrist among us, just understand that anyone who opposes or usurps the role of Jesus is in opposition to Christ. Make sense? So... There we go. That's all we're going to talk about on the Antichrist today. Um, Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. 
He who denies the Father and the Son. They are in opposition to. They're an enemy of God. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is, just as it has taught you, abide in him. We're going to look at five principles out of these ten verses this morning. Number one, church presence, participation, or attendance alone is a poor indicator of a living faith. In James, in First and Second Peter, First, Second, and Third John, even a little bit in Hebrews, we see this dynamic where their um, faith. You can have a faith that is not a living, active, saving faith. There are many who have a faith that is dead and powerless and weightless and useless, as we say, see in James chapter two. First Peter is very clear that those who don't endure to the end, as we see alluded to here in First John chapter two, were never of us. Um, they did not have a living, saving faith. And so this morning, what we're really going to see is there were many in the family who were leaving in droves because of governmental or political persecution or whether internal grumbling or they were listening to the wrong voices, didn't know how to feed themselves and hear the word of God for themselves and were listening to the lies of false teachers. They were leaving. Um, this morning, I want us to really evaluate our own hearts. Chase Sims in the last four days has just been uh, letting the Lord chip away at the baggage of my heart and my mind so that I can know the fullness of his joy, the peace of his presence, and the power of his nearness outside of my own callous. Number one, church presence and participation alone is a poor indicator of living faith. Listen, for our Let's, let's think externally, first of all, okay? Don't assume, I'm really bad at this, that uh, a person's heart status is based on their church presence. It's really easy to, when we're talking to neighbors and friends about faith matters and we want to help someone know the love of God. So, uh, you know, you go to church anywhere? Yeah, we go to, oh, okay, they're good. Like, I'm really good at justifying my lack of intentionality with neighbors and friends and co-workers simply because they can ascribe to some faith tradition or some church attendance. I justify, well, I don't have to press in there. Whew, it's really easy to mark it off. Don't assume that the people closest to you have a living faith where they know the peace, the power, the presence, and the goodness of God simply because they are an active or inactive attendee. Don't assume that churchgoers are Christ lovers. And don't assume that your or my attendance is sufficient for full joy, expectant peace, and evident grace. There are a lot of just baffled Christians in the world who say, man, I'm at church every Sunday. Man, I'm, I'm in 
small group every week. Man, I'm doing all the right things. Listen, this was me from 17 to 21. I am doing every single stinking thing I'm supposed to. And my heart is dry and crusty and callous. I don't like reading the Bible. I don't understand it. Praying, I fall asleep praying in my bed every night. God, what? seems like this is either I'm doing it wrong or this Jesus thing is a joke. Because I thought it was sufficient. Thought that my food was the word of a pastoral leader or a preacher, and <laughs> them alone. But if your joy in the Lord, if the fullness of your joy, if the intimacy of your walk with Jesus is based on what Nathan can provide on a once a day or twice a week, once a week or twice a week basis, or what? the people in this room can provide for you one day a week. You're going to be doubt-filled. You're going to be frustration-filled. And you are not going to know the fullness of the Lord. Principle number two. In line with that, don't idolize secondary sources of God's voice. The context here is not necessarily that wolves had infiltrated with malicious intent, but that immature sheep were led astray without a shepherd. Okay, listen, kind of along the same note. Teachers and preachers and prophets and pastors are gifts, but they can be dangerous if we idolize them and they replace a personal intimacy and a recognition of God's voice, our good shepherd, through God's word in our every day. Listen, I love my mother-in-law's cooking. Okay, she is from Louisiana. All right, lives in South Louisiana, and every time she says, "What do you want?" I say, "I want some of those rice crispy, crispy treats." That's what I get from Corinne. I want some of those rice crispy treats, and um, I want some jambalaya. I could eat her jambalaya every meal, every day. Here's the deal: when I'm in South Louisiana, I do also king cake. They brought king cakes out. Never mind, we won't go there. My shirt's a little tighter this week because I've tried every king cake in town in the last four days. Um, my mother-in-law makes unbelievable jambalaya. Here's the deal. I see my mother-in-law about once a month. If the only meal I eat is my mother-in-law's jambalaya, you know what would happen to me? I would die. I would shrivel up and die. Because I can't expect her provision once a month to be sufficient for me every day. In the same way, listen friends, with the best of intentions, the Western church puts so much pressure on our pastors and our leaders. When we're dry in the week or we're not getting what we want, or Sunday isn't enough, it's because we're depending on one person to feed our soul to the point of satisfaction for seven days. When, listen, a good shepherd's responsibility is to lead the sheep to the pasture that is safe and where the food is plentiful. It is the sheep's responsibility to eat. John is writing to a group of people who the only voices they heard were secondary or tertiary voices. Listen, they were unable to hear 
the voice of God heed the Spirit's leadership themselves. And so they were drawn to whatever teaching they could find because they had no anchor for themselves. They had no anchor of their soul. They were desperate on whoever would feed them. Listen, you will have a miserable faith, lifeless faith, and lead a miserable Christian life if you're putting the pressure on somebody's podcast or some pastor's Sunday morning sermon to satisfy your soul every day because you're not feeding from the hand of the Lord, but you're eating the leftovers that God's given somebody else. Absolutely necessary that we don't idolize secondary voices because when we fail, when the sheep fail to hear and heed the voice of God, we die. We die. And it's not anybody's fault, but the lazy sheep. Church presence and participation alone is a poor indicator of living faith. Number two, don't idolize secondary sources of God's voice. And number, number three, y'all know I'm so distracted. I just, there's so many things I want to say go through my mind. <laughs> Colin! Uh, living faith shines at... No, Jack, Jack, no, bro. <laughs> Live, oh, I'm a jerk. Okay, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen. What are we talking about? Living faith, number three. Number three. Li- living faith shines in the darkness, while dead faith is exposed and crumbles. Living faith shines in the darkness, while dead faith is exposed and crumbles. Listen. The threat of governmental persecution and the enticing safety of false teachers lured many professing Christians from the shallows of their faith and ultimately led to their demise. We still, after having God's written word for about 2,000 years to some degree, Christians still seem to be surprised when everything doesn't go perfectly our way. We still seem to feel like God hates us and is cursing us when we find ourselves at a barrier, at a burden, in affliction, or in pain. Like it's not God's desire that we should hurt or struggle or fight or uh, see any hardship or affliction. That, by the way, is one of enticing false <laughs> truths, false falsities, heresies of these teachers that are leading us astray. Because nowhere in this blessed, bound book do we get the idea that God says, when you come to me, all your problems go away. You'll be rich and strong and mighty and healthy and safe your whole life. No, because that's not where living faith is nurtured. And that's sure not where living faith is seen. A.W. Tozer, one of my absolute favorite favorite thinkers and writers in Christian history said this, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Listen to this. A.W. Tozer wouldn't be warmly welcomed in a lot of places today. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him 
deeply. Listen, friends, the prom- if there is one promise in the Word of God, it is we are blessed by affliction and suffering because it reveals not whether or not our faith is good or bad faith or whether God is good or bad, but listen, it determines whether our faith is a living faith or whether it's a dead faith. It determines not whether you've got good gold or bad gold. It determines whether the substance of your heart and your faith is gold or fool's gold, fake gold, whether it has value or whether it doesn't. Still, sweet, dear friends that I love so much, talk to regularly or hear from regularly who are blown away that something in life could be hard or something couldn't go the way that we planned, they planned, I planned. That sickness has come or that hardship remains or that, God, why is God not taking us with He's refining you. He's refining us and he's showing you, listen, the greatest gift he could ever give us is himself. And when things are good and great and we are our own God and don't feel a need, we don't, we don't cling to the only thing that's the best thing for us and it's him. And so he breaks our grubby, grabby hands so that we can know what's best. And that's his joy that is full. That is his peace passes all understanding and that's his power it is greater than the power of any man woman boy girl substance prophet you could find in this world living faith shines and is refined in the darkness while dead faith is exposed and crumbles do you trust the father and do you persevere in faith when affliction arrives uncertainty abounds and your desires are unmet by the way that's an ideal time to evaluate and reorganize our desires i need to get that like tattooed on my forearm i think um it's in these moments that god is graciously listen to me god's not cursing you god's not hating you god's not turning his back on you and god hasn't forgotten you when you hit the wall when you find yourself in affliction and when you're walking in the mud. It's in these moments that God is graciously, lovingly granting us an opportunity to evaluate our heart's anchor and to adjust or reposition it in Him. Church presence and participation alone is a poor indicator of living faith. Don't idolize secondary sources of God's voice because we'll starve to death. Living faith shines in the darkness and is refined, while dead faith is exposed and crumbles. Fourthly, we got two more, and they're both pretty quick. Living faith is active, not passive faith. This is where we really begin to understand abiding. Abiding. What does it mean to abide in verses uh, 24? I don't think I put it back on there. Verse 24 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. Friends, to abide in Christ, in John chapter 15, it's where we really have this whole idea of vine church, by the way, is abide out of John 15. Um, but uh, to, to abide is to 
actively remain in, okay? Two days ago, it was raining. If I was in my garage, I was dry. If I walked outside my garage to do something in the driveway, I would get wet, okay? I could not be mad at the rain. I could not be mad at my wife. I could not be mad at my garage if I was outside of the garage. Whoops, sorry, I'm back. Um, if I was outside of my garage and I was getting wet, whose fault was that? It was Chase's. Why? Because I did not abide. I did not actively remain in the protection of the garage from the rain. Did it hurt me? Not at all. But listen. A living faith means that when we abide in the truths that we have been entrusted with and to, when we place and keep, actively keep, reposition and align ourselves within the protection and the provision of God's promises by his word, we will know eternal life. By the way, fascinating, you do a word study on the word eternal, doesn't just mean like eternal life is forever in duration, but eternal, it's not just a quantitative word, like in number of years, but it's a qualitative word, meaning like eternally good, infinitely beneficial good. Like right now, the John 10, 10, life to the full right now, it's not like, oh, Jesus saves me for heaven forever, but he saves you for now, infinitely. It is infinitely better, eternally better to place yourself in the provision and the protection of God today than to step outside of his provision and his protection and be bombarded by everything that the enemy in the world throws at us outside of that. Living faith is active, not passive. Why do so many people leave the faith at 16 or 22? These statistics have been abounding for Years and years and years and years and years. Why do so many people leave their faith at 16 or 22? That's when the faith that was entrusted to you, what you heard and what you know, that's when the faith that was entrusted, the gospel that you heard in the beginning either becomes your own personal faith that you willfully, as a student becoming an adult, choose to abide and remain in, or you remove yourself in independence to um, let it remain your parents imparted secondhand faith. That's the point that our faith mindfully, willfully becomes our own or it becomes our parents. It doesn't make sense and repulses us. There's a puzzling dilemma. I have always been puzzled by this, okay? Please hear my heart on this. The puzzling dilemma of three-year-olds who got saved and then just wandered for 25 years or wandered for a lifetime. And nevertheless, you have a sweet, God-trusting parent who'll say, I know he knows the Lord, but I, I know she knows the Lord, but they just haven't been walking with him for 10 years or for 25 years. I think the problem with that is we've passively accepted an easy faith that is based on a cheap grace. I want you to see this. I want you to hear this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another brilliant heart and mind that I love and am thankful for his life, wrote this in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace 
is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stubble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. But it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son because we were bought with a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but he delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Listen, friends, if your faith, if your faith is based on a moment or an experience in the past, more so than a living and loving relationship in the present, you are likely deceived in living in the lie instead of in the light. For so many years, when I would go to 1 John, and I was doubting my faith, doubting my salvation, I was running to everybody like, I don't know if I'm saved, I don't know if I know the Lord, I don't know if I... I finally, for the longest time, I had people say, well, what, when did you commit your life to Christ? When? What was the day? What was the date? What was the time? January 24th, 2012. And then before that, it was October 2, 2010. And before that, it was 2009. And before that, it was 2008. Before that, it was 2007. I got baptized like 55 times, okay? My whole wardrobe was the baptism t-shirt, all right? Like, time and time and time again. But then John writes and says, listen, this, I write this so that you can know. How can we know? Not based on something that we did in the past, but based on who we know we are in Christ is in the present. Here's how we know. Are you enduring in faith? Are you walking persistently in the midst of all barriers with the risen living Son of God? That's how we know. Abiding in the risen one, the living one, entrusting our hearts, not to the steps of obedience every day, but the person of Jesus that fuels the steps that help us in turn know him. I struggled with my faith from 8 years old to 21 years old because I did not know how to abide and remain in and with the person of Jesus by the provisions and the protections of God. Because I was so fixed on what I did in relation to this building. Not this one specifically, but one similar to it in Laurel, Mississippi. Um, Jesus, (laughs) 
Many professing Christians fill churches and attend Bible studies and worship gatherings every week or every night of the week in some cases, wondering why their attendance and adherence is not satisfying the gaping, wounded hole in their heart and the despair in their soul. It's because Jesus was not made for the church and the Christian's well-being and pleasure, but we were made for his glory and his pleasure. And when we align and submit and abide, remain, actively place ourselves day by day by day by day in the hand of God, we know his life, his peace, his power, his nearness, his joy. Fifth and finally, living faith endures to the end. Our troubling tendency, just touched on this, in our modern mass evangelism-minded culture, that a profession of faith at any point provides a passive, unconditional, eternal security was a word I've heard my whole life, forevermore. John provides us a series of tests, not to look back at a decision we made in the past, but to look down at the posture of our hearts and the possession and the placement of our hands and our feet today. He says, are you in me? Are you remaining in and with me? Are you abiding in and with me? That is the test. The obedience test, the love test, and really the posture and position test of our heart, our head, and our hands. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us when we're unlovable. And that's the beauty of this gospel. The costly grace is that you gave Jesus when we couldn't live up to the price. Lord, help us to see you, taste you, know you. Lord, to abide and to remain in you. Lord, when our Hurting hearts are restless and anxious. Help us remember that you are reminding us of our despair and our desperate need for something greater than ourselves and the kindness of your grace that provides Jesus in those moments. God, in our uncertainty and our fear and God, our frustration and our doubt, remind us, give us a filter that says you are loving us to see our self-control. You're allowing us to see our mispositioned anchor and our misaligned priorities and Jesus help us to see you, taste you, seek you hear you above all else thank you Jesus for your word, thank you for this family of faith, bind our hearts together and lead us in your way for your glory Lord, amen 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 thanks Chase, that was awesome (laughs) yeah I wrote something down what you were talking, Chase, and, and talking about the statistics, people that walk away. You know, I mean, I've heard, we were youth pastors for a long time. We heard those statistics, 80% of everybody who grew up in faith. And I thought, man, I wrote down, we don't follow Jesus because it feels good. We don't follow Jesus because it's popular. We don't follow Jesus because our parents did. We don't follow Jesus because it's a promise for prosperity. We follow Jesus because it's true. And, and what changes when we follow Jesus because it's true? That means if it doesn't feel good anymore, if prosperity leaves, if it's no longer popular, if it, we're now under persecution, we continue to follow Jesus because it's true. 
I think for too long we've taught that follow Jesus and everything's going to be great, everything's going to be fine, and everyone else, look, all your friends are doing it, and it's the cool thing to do. It's like, well, what happens when it's no longer the cool thing to do, and you're, in a, uh, you're 18 in a university that's not a Christian university, and it's no longer cool, it's no longer popular. Whenever you lost a job, there's no longer prosperity. It's like, well, if it's still true, that's why we follow Jesus, because it's true. But even now, I thought, well, uh, how would that change my perspective of my current situation? If I'm just following Jesus because it's true, not because it feels good, not because of popularity or prosperity or whatever, how would that change my current mindset of, what I'm, of where I'm at? But once you grab those connection cards, you guys know on the back of those cards, we fill out what's my next right step. Take a moment, fill that out, and then go grab your kiddos and uh, bring them back in here. We have some awesome worship today. During practice, I was like, man, it's going to be so good. So I'm excited about that. Online, we love you. We'll see you next week.